You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, the podcast for marketing professionals in higher education. Join us every week as we talk to the industry's greatest minds in student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where marketing and higher ed is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. I'm Troy Singer, and today we're celebrating our 100th episode. You might have noticed the show has a new sound, and if you follow us on social media, a new look. Bart and I are so thankful for the amazing response that our show has gotten over the last two years, and it has been our pleasure to have you along for the journey as a listener. As we look toward our next 100 episodes, the challenge is on us to continue to bring you guests, strategies, and tools to help your institution stay relevant to yesterday's, today's, and tomorrow's students. Bart, I am so grateful to celebrate with you. I know. Isn't it amazing? It's been almost uh, almost two years since we started this podcast. I, I feel like I need to get you a gift or something. I'm not sure what the 100th episode gift should be, but uh, it's pretty exciting <laughs> milestone. Well, you've given me many gifts, and I'm so grateful to be a partner with you. And something else I'm grateful for is our dynamic guest that we have. Yeah. Anne Hanley, she is a keynote speaker. Her book, Everybody Writes, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. If you are a marketer, this should be on your desk somewhere. It's not only informative, it's written in a way that will make you smile. And she is a person that will make you smile as you learn from her. It's such a blessing to have Anne here today. And as you said, I mean, what a great person, very authentic, very real. You're going to get so much out of it. She alluded in the conversation, we could go on for five hours uh, and having this conversation, but she really kind of provides some good context for content marketing, the idea of everybody writes, you know, how you can improve your own writing. And then she has some really great stories of higher ed. So really encourage you to kind of listen to this, take some notes, you know, rewind it, listen to it, grab the book. It's a great episode. Here is our conversation with Anne Hanley. And we are so grateful that you're joining us for our 100th episode and would like to ask of you, please share something with us that you've learned recently that you would put in either the interesting or fun category. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, I have to say right off the bat, 100? That's, <laughs> I just learned that, so congrats. <laughs> Here I am thinking I'm showing up for any basic episode. Nay, nay. 100. (laughs) We are so grateful for that. That's very, very fun. I also found out that here I am complaining that the Northeast is the most frigid place in the U.S. And I just literally found out that that is not true because (laughs) you are both existing, maybe just subsisting in climates that are colder than mine. So that's the other thing. All right. Number three that I learned, though. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I read it on the internet, so I feel like it's got to be true. We'll it's go true. with it. All right, we'll so I learned that. That, that otters mate for life. I have heard that myself, and I think I heard it on the internet as well. So really? Okay, well, then there we go. Must be true. Yeah, two people heard it on the internet, so therefore it is absolutely true. 
Well, let, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously, just give us a, a brief understanding of, of who you are for those listeners who might not be familiar. Just a, just the quick elevator pitch. I am the world's first chief content officer. I'm the author of two books about marketing, one focusing on content and one focusing more specifically on marketing writing. Although I have heard that an awful lot of people outside of marketing actually use the book, including another fun fact I learned uh, just this week, including the homeschooling community seems to have oh. embraced it as a way to teach writing to homeschooled high schoolers. So that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah. So that is who I am. I am also the chief content officer of marketing profs. I founded a company called Clixie way back in 1997 in uh, God, what would that be in dog years? About a, <laughs> 172. I am the mom to both creatures four-legged and two-legged and I have a four-legged one right here beside me because he is a pandemic puppy and he literally does not leave my side ever so <laughs> he is right here off camera that's great well thank you again for being with us and you kind of referenced a little bit to you know some of your work there and one thing that I think is is interesting that I wanted to kind of start off with was the idea of content marketing I came across a Seth Godin quote recently that said content marketing is all the marketing that's left. Mm. And, and I think that's interesting because, I mean, especially in the world of chat GPT and Google and where's all that going to go. And, and I, I made a post yesterday on LinkedIn about the idea that content is going to be the fuel for any of this going forward as mm -hmm. far as, you know, the way the way people are going to get information. But just tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, you've been in the content marketing game longer than the word became a buzzword. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So it's funny when you, you mentioned that Seth Godin quote. I've, I've heard it, you know, a number of times over the years. I think he probably said it, my God, probably about a decade ago or so. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. I mean, I bristle a little bit at the idea that it's the only thing left because I also right. feel like anything that tends to be that categorical, it's the only way to forward. I mean, I don't know if I would go that far, but sure. I think it's critical and I think it's the cornerstone of what so many of us do in marketing, whether you're in higher ed marketing or whether you're in technology. I mean, I think it spans across so many industries. So yes, I absolutely think that it is a critical tool, especially in a world, as you just pointed out, Bart, where chat GPT is going to be increasingly, or, or I should say AI platforms and tools right. are going to be increasingly part of, of what we need to think about in marketing. But I will say that as an aside to that, I think it's one of the things that I love about the explosion of the buzz around chat GPT and around AI writing tools in general is that suddenly we're all in on writing, aren't we? <laughs> Where, Isn't that funny? Yeah, it is really funny. I mean, I published Everybody Writes the first edition eight years ago. And at that time, the feedback that I often got from critics was, why are you publishing a book about writing? I mean, isn't the world moving towards audio and video and live streaming and all the things that we've been using in marketing? Why are you talking about writing? And yet here we are, fast forward eight years, I just came out with a second edition. But also writing is suddenly like, yes, we're all in on that. We need to be using platforms like AI uh, or AI, AI platforms and AI tools because writing is so key to everything we do. I will fight you if you disagree with me. <laughs> like that's where we've come to. I'm like, heck yes. So whether you agree that, you know, AI writing tools and platforms are going to be 
a cornerstone, that they're a game changer or not, like it doesn't almost matter. But I think what's key in that, and just to go back to your original question, you know, content is so central to everything that we do because we are literally communicators. And how do we communicate? It's through writing, sure, but, but through content more generally. Even to the point where you kind of alluded to the fact that everybody's like content is, is audio and it's going to be video and these things. I personally find that whenever I take this podcast and I, you know, create a blog post around it that turns it into, you know, mm-hmm. written content, I have more people consume that content than people that listen to the podcast. Mm. And I think it comes back to there's a distillation that happens when we come down to the written word that people some way, somehow timing or context or modality, people can just relate to the written word sometimes better than than a video or than audio, even though that might be more convenient sometimes. Mm. I mean, I do think that that's true. I also think that it's in, in the sense of what do I think is true there? I mean, I think it's true that text is additive, right? I think sometimes we get into these conversations where it's very binary, right? It's right. it's either writing or audio, it's writing mm-hmm. or video, or it's text or, you know, a webinar. And I don't think that that's a world that we, like black and white is not a world where I play as a marketer and I don't think any of us wanna be there. I don't think it's a matter of text or something. I think it's text and something. I also look at the way that I consume content as I'm scrolling through the internet going about my day, I'm a very impatient person. And sometimes I don't have the patience to sit through a 17 minute video. So what I do is typically, you know, play it back at one and a half speeds and I open up the transcript and I and I look for those moments that, that capture my attention. So I don't know, that's just me, but I have to believe that I'm not all that unique in terms of how people are going about their day. In part because, you know, there's a lot of content out there. There's lots of great stuff that I want to see. There's some terrible stuff too, but very often there's some great stuff that ends up in my path and I tend to go through it pretty quickly. And when something is truly engaging, then I slow down and read it. But Mm -hmm. I feel like that first filter is often at the at the scrolling and at the one and a half times speed phase. We are a culture of scanners. I mean, we are hunting for the information that we're looking for, just like you've talked about, you know, watching videos at one and a half speed, mm-hmm. you know, listening to podcasts at, you know, time, times X speed. But the idea is when we find what we're looking for, when we answer that question, we we had Jay Bear on the uh, podcast a, a few months ago talking about his book Utility and the idea of we're trying to answer questions. That's the best type of marketing. And I still maintain the fact that we hunt for the information we're looking for. And when we find it, we slow down and we consume yes. it then. And, and I'm sure that's a big part of what you understand content marketing to be as well. Yeah. And I do talk about this in the book. I, I talk about your goal as a marketer is to stop the scroll, right? Mm-hmm. You want to stop the scrollers. I was thinking of it as like a, um, a bowling team of rabbis, like the scrollers, like, you know, <laughs> um, so yeah, your, your goal is to stop people who are just coming onto your site and scrolling, 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 looking for the information that they want because when we can stop the scroll and our audience our customer our prospect our prospective student is going to engage with that content the key of course is when you have stopped the scroll because you've answered a question then what are they finding there is it a really good answer or is it kind of mediocre 
Yeah, is it transactional or is it persuasive? Exactly, and is it written in a way that is engaging? Um, is it written in a way that is going to w create what I call an it's me moment in the mind of your prospect or, or in the mind of your visitor? When they come to your website or your social channels, do they recognize themselves? Are they seeing themselves reflected back both in the images that you use as well as in the words that you're using? In one of the chapters in the book, you emphasize the idea of making the customer the hero of the story. And mm -hmm. I love some of the ways that you describe that. So if you would, for our listeners, if you can kind of describe that here and in the context of higher ed marketing, maybe the customer being students or campus influencers that our marketers are communicating with. You know, I think when we talk about making our customer, our prospect, our prospective student, our whether it's it's your influencers reaching out to prospective students, whether we're thinking about parents that we want to reach, whether we're thinking about you know alum, all of those categories of people who we are communicating with, I think it's just in, imperative to think about what is in their their mind, like what is who are they? Number one, um, what do they care about? What are their pain points? Often in marketing, we tend to think about those categories of people as personas, right? We think about, oh, this is our alumni group over here or alumni group over here. This is our prospective student list over here. I think it's much more useful if we really want to make the customer the hero of our story or, or the prospect the hero of our story then I think it's much more useful to think about one person who you are trying to affect the behavior of, that you're, you're trying to touch the heart and, and the mind of. In marketing, we get caught up in, in the segmentation of personas. And I feel like all of that language, segmentation and personas, it just takes us further and further away from our real superpower, which is the ability to communicate directly with one person at what time. And that sounds so elemental, right? It sounds so basic and I recognize that fully, but at the same time, we don't do it often enough. And you can go throughout, you know, go, go to any website and you'll see it. When you see that, that a bit, when you see that someone is communicating directly with you, it just makes such a difference. Are you creating those it's me moments as, as we talked about a second ago? Are you really thinking about that one person at one time? You know, before we started going live today, Troy, and I hope I won't embarrass you, but you, you know, you shared about how when you read my book, you felt like that I was writing directly to you. I think about this obsessively. <laughs> like, of course I didn't write to you, Troy, because we just met today. But I love the fact that you just said that because that to me is what I try to do as a marketer, as a communicator, as a writer, as a newsletter publisher, all the things that I do, I think about that one person. Even by the way, like when I'm posting on LinkedIn, which seems like, oh, I'm posting to LinkedIn to this whole community of people who are following me there. Like, I don't care about that. I care about one person and I, I put them in, I fix them in my mind's eye. I hot glue them there, like they're not moving. I'm thinking about that one person who I wanna help, who I want to affect, and then I write the social post, the email newsletter, whatever it is to that one person. Um, now I don't say, dear Troy, of course, but I do think about who am I targeting in, in aggressive marketing speak? Who am I actually writing to? And that just helps the way that I communicate so much. And by the way, it's a big difference between the first edition and the second edition of the book because I really embrace that opportunity to think about that customer as hero in my, in my case, like reader as hero in the second edition. 
And I really love what you're talking about there. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, a couple of guests that we've had. Ethan Butte from BombBomb, he wrote a book on humanizing our communication. They, they do video yep. uh, video types of things. And then I've also, you know, really like a lot of what Gary Vee talks about with just the emotion. You know, the whole idea of empathy for our audience. And I think sometimes, especially in higher education, I see that it tends, as I mentioned earlier, we tend to focus a little bit on transaction. Hey, we need to get them to do this. We need them to do that. They need to find this. And I think that as marketers, sometimes we miss the boat on how much opportunity there is to interject emotion, to interject empathy into where these people are in their journey. I know we, 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 ch- we plan to talk for an hour today, but let's reset the clock for five hours, okay? Because we have a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack there yeah. with empathy. <laughs> and I think that sometimes it's missed. A couple of years ago, I was looking at prospective colleges and universities with my daughter and we went to an accepted students day at this one institution and you know the whole point of those accepted student day events as everybody here knows is that you know it's meant to be like this is the best part of our college look how much fun this is like look at the food it's absolutely incredible did you try that quinoa salad it's off the hook (laughs) it's like that kind of vibe right it's supposed to be essentially full sales mode for everybody so it's maybe toward the middle of the afternoon and we're sitting down in this in the university auditorium there's a whole room full of prospective parents and their kids who were accepted and they had a panel of administrators and just school representatives at the front including some students some professors director of missions was there the housing person a bunch of others it was meant to be like a, a town hall open q a so there were some basic questions that came from the parents and the, and the students in the audience, but mostly the parents, because that's how those things go. And at one point, this guy raised his hand. He addressed the housing director and he said, so I've heard about this thing where you accept too many students than you can comfortably house in the residential dorms. And so I've heard about something called a forced triple, where rooms meant for two students are converted for three. So the housing administrator like stood up and she was like, oh yes, yes, of course. That does happen from time to time. We call that expanded occupancy units. And then she went on to talk about why that was the case. I felt the energy in the room just shift when she said that, (laughs) you know? It was because what she did there was be incredibly unempathetic to that parent. That parent was worried, right? That parent was saying, well, wait a second, my kid gets into this school, we're going to be paying, you know, a million dollars for my child to live on campus to get the whole experience. Like, think about the mindset of a parent right there. He's like asking, what's the plan? Like, what could happen? Do you think this will happen to my kid is really his question, right? right? He's actually asking not about how you handle this as a school, as an institution. He's saying, will this happen to me? What will that feel like? And what are you gonna do about it? So this doesn't happen to my child if he or she chooses to go here. So the fact that she didn't put herself in the mindset of that parent, number one. Number two, inserted something that really paints a picture in your mind, right? First forced triple, like what? That sounds so aggressive. That sounds like almost violent, doesn't it? A forced triple, that sounds horrible. Mm -hmm. Like immediately all the parents in the room were like, forced triple, what does that even mean? I haven't even heard this before. And then she corrected him by giving this sort of jargony kind of phrase, you know, of expanded occupancy unit. Now, 
I think there were many ways she could have answered that, but I think fundamentally lacking in that situation was her ability to just, again, put herself in the shoes, inside the skin, literally, of that parent asking that question and saying, you know, immediately, I understand that's a concern. Here's how the school is looking to make sure that doesn't happen with the incoming class. That's kind of a harsh example, I know, but I see it all the time in marketing where we tend to think, talk about our products and our services. You know, in this case, it was uh, a residential dorm in terms of, of, you know, what we are doing about us as opposed to thinking about what is the real question that our audience needs answered and how do we actually answer that question in a way that, again, creates that it's me moment. And that secondly, Mm -hmm. just, you know, fulfills the objective that answers the question in a way that it's going to feel okay. That whole idea of empathy, emotion, being able to persuade, being able to really kind of, you know, understand where those students are on the enrollment journey or the parents. I mean, I think that sometimes, you know, being able to, like you said, Mm -hmm. that it's me moment, I think is going to be so critical. And and I really appreciate that story. Thanks for sharing that. You know, you've already kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, the reason that you created the book, we talked about Troy being kind of the the person that's targeting. But let's just talk a little bit about the idea of content. Everybody's creating content, the the book everybody writes. Talk about that. So, The second edition of Everybody Writes came out in October of 2022. The first edition came out in 2014, around the same time of year, in the fall of 2014. It's done incredibly well. It sold well. It, it, you know, it seems to resonate with marketers or just my Mm -hmm. intended audience or communicators of, of any kind, really. And so the question when I approached my publisher about creating a second edition they didn't come to me, by the way, I went to them. And their question, their biggest question was like, well, why? <laughs> like, why are you bothering? Because it's still selling. It's, you know, been translated into 17 languages. Like, it's still doing super well. Like, what is your motivation? And I had two bits of motivation. Number one was that there's some stuff in there that I just felt needed a little bit of um, freshening. There were some examples that were a little bit old. There were some things that just weren't true anymore. But secondly, my thinking had evolved, you know, probably like everybody here, like think back to what you were, what was in your head, what you were consumed with in 2014, or even from a professional standpoint, like what were you writing and thinking and curious about? And that has evolved for me in the past eight years, like it does for everybody. And I also thought though, that there was even more need for a book right now that would talk about writing because, you know, I talk Mm -hmm. about um, AI tools and platforms in the book and I saw that coming um, as I was thinking about a second edition. And so I felt like it just, there were a few things that, that needed updating. So I thought literally it would take me about, I don't know, three weeks to sort of refresh the book. Like in my head, it was going to be very, (laughs) very simple and very easy. And so my publisher was like, can you get this to us by May? And I was like, sure, no problem. I got this. So as part of my research, I went to Amazon and I started reading the Amazon reviews. And the only reason why I read them is because I was thinking to myself, I wonder if there's like some clues in here. Like what do people say could use a little refreshing? Because yeah, the book came out in in 2014, the, the original version, I mean. But, you know, people are still reviewing it. And so it's just interesting to see, like, just for research, like, what what are people saying about it now? Is there anything that maybe I haven't thought about that I should pay attention to? And there was this one review that popped up for me 
this guy, and I say it's a guy because it had very male energy, foreboding, um, (laughs) said that, uh, gave the first edition of the book, now it has like 940 something five-star reviews, like people like it. This guy gave the, the first edition of the book three stars. I was like, three stars? That's a little bit harsh, but okay. And I started reading his review and he said, you know, this book was okay, but it felt a little too buttoned up and dutiful were those two adjectives that he used. And the reason why he thought that it was buttoned up and dutiful is because he's a regular subscriber to my email newsletter that comes out every other Sunday. And in that is very like fun and loose and and that I have a fun writing style. And he said it, that I don't know where that style is in the first edition of the book. And so that's why he mm. gave it three stars. And so I was like, so I was so upset about it. You know, I just felt it in my bones. It just really, really bothered me. And then, you know, it's true in life that when things really get under your skin, it's probably because there's a little bit of truth to them. And that was exactly right. So I thought, you know what, this guy is totally right. I'm going to think about how my voice sounds in the first edition of the book and then think about how I might improve that in the second edition of the book. Well, what that ended up being was not three weeks of work. It was not, you know, just a, a light dusting and vacuuming and running the Roomba over the entire manuscript. Instead, it turned into a complete rewrite. And that's mm. ultimately what I ended up doing. And, and the voice is different. It's it's much more inherently personal. Um, that's why, you know, it, as a conversation we had, that's why it feels like it was written to Troy. And that was the, the overall vibe. I wanted to make it funnier and a fun read. And I also wanted to expand the text itself by talking about things like AI, talking about newsletters, the opportunity with newsletters, the evolution of my thinking around direct response email. I know that's a long answer, right. but but that's basically why. And Troy, what was the comment you said before we got on, on air with uh, the, the way you responded to the book? It was written for me and millions like me because I am someone that knows I need to write to be relevant, especially being a marketer, but I don't feel like I am a good writer and and writes to that. She gives us clues on why some people who think they are good writers aren't. (laughs) And for some of us who are good writers are. And uh, I'm so thankful for that. And it's a manual. So if you're not familiar with the book, I don't consider something that you just read and put down. It should sit beside you. And there's so many things you can go back to. So that's the reason why I am thankful for it. Thanks, Troy. I like that. I remember in 2014, that area, I purchased Everybody Writes. I also purchased Utility by Jay Bear. There was like three or four books, one from by Guy Kawasaki that, that year that I really kind of, it kind of changed the trajectory of the way I was thinking about marketing. I mean, I'd been a marketer, designer most of my career, but those three books really kind of started to change the way that I started to think about really putting the customer first, being able to really create content that was going to serve people as opposed mm-hmm. to just promote. And so I really appreciate uh, that. And, and Anne, I think you've also got some very practical items in the book. As Troy mentioned, it's more of a manual than a, than a book. But I mean, just the idea of the, the habit of writing, kind of exercising that muscle and, and you know, the idea that story rules. Just tell us a bit about some of those practical things that are in the book. Yeah, so the book is titled Everybody Writes Intentionally because I want to empower people, marketers, communicators, to remember that we are all writers. 
so many of us carry around this sort of mantle, like like Troy mentioned a second ago, that we are terrible writers, you know, or that we are not natural writers or, you know, insert whatever adjective you want. But I think that that's a, that's a myth. I think we can all become stronger writers. And that's why the subtitle is to creating ridiculously good content, right? Because I think we're all capable of ridiculously mm -hmm. good, but we've got to put in the reps, right? So that what that means is you've got to practice mm -hmm. it. Like I think maintaining a sort of daily diary or journal it's just it's a good practice as a writer but i also think it's good practice as a person <laughs> i mean it can just help you if you think about doing reps over time yeah in the new edition too i talk a lot about storytelling and how we think about story from a brand storytelling point of view especially from a product storytelling point of view um, how to think about you know creating a story that will engage the the hearts and minds of those you seek to engage the hearts and minds of so how do you actually tell a story that will resonate with with someone i offer a framework for that in the second edition i also talk about something where which i think is incredibly relevant especially right now just in the world where you know ai is is kind of rising up in terms of content and in terms of marketing i talk a lot about voice brand voice tone of voice because mm -hmm. i think that is what we need to be thinking about as we think about you know using ai tools you don't want the content that your institution publishes to look identical to the one that you know is your closest competitor right you want to think about how do we differentiate right. and a lot of that comes back to brand voice how do you think about brand voice what is brand voice number one and then secondly how do exactly. you actually use it to articulate how you are different we don't leverage our voice enough, the, the language that we use, the way that we communicate, and really thinking about that as an opportunity to build that relationship. At this point, I have a question that I consistently ask that ends our episode. And I'm gonna preface that question today by knowing you wrote a book that gives hundreds of answers to this last question. So hopefully the answer you give today will lead people back to the book. But if you would give us a piece of advice that a marketer could utilize starting immediately after listening to this podcast, what piece of advice would you offer? I love marketing and I love empowering marketers. But more than that, I want marketers to feel inspired and, and happy, and I want them to be engaged with their work. And I think especially where, you know, like right now, so many of us feel like kind of burned out and disconnected. And I think that we can do something positive, like in terms of thinking about our own lives and, and just in terms of our own careers, too. And, and so that's in part why I, I wrote this book, because I wanted to inspire and to help marketers re-engage with their jobs, with their audiences, with themselves. So I guess that's a roundabout way of saying, yes, I would love it if, if, you, if you found that to be true in this book. The thing is, like, yes, I want you to buy the book, but like the book isn't mine anymore, like it's yours. And if you find value in it, and I hope you do, then <laughs> take it with you and it's it's out of my hands now. So I certainly hope that to, to be the case. And number two, my last piece of advice would be to really think about what does it mean to be a, a communicator and a marketer in 2023? What does it mean to engage all the audiences that we that we need to engage and how do we do that in a way that feels real and authentic you know that word authentic is tossed around so mm -hmm. much in marketing so how do we actually 
understand what it means at, a, at an almost cellular level and then how do we actually in, embrace it as, as a cornerstone of our communication. Thank you, Anne, and thank you for being a guest on our podcast. You are the 100th guest, and that was very deliberate because you are special and your messaging is special <laughs> oh, to us. Thank you. You're welcome. This might be another Captain yeah. Obvious question. Um, you're not hard to find, but if someone would like to connect with you, what would the best way for them to do so? You can go to annhanley.com. Um, I have a fortnightly newsletter. Fortnightly means that it's published every other week, not bi-weekly because that's a very confusing word. It can mean twice a week or it can mean every other week. So that's why I say it's fortnightly. It's published every other Sunday morning. So I encourage you to sign up there. It's free. Uh, if you don't like it, you can unsubscribe. No hard feelings. Um, but I do put a lot of, of heart and effort into that because, you know, again, I, I really I love the email newsletter format. I love writing and I love marketing. So um, so there's a lot that goes into that. So that's how you can find me or you can just go to annhaley.com and send me a note from there. Bart, would you end our 100th episode with a couple of thoughts you have? Sure. And again, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You, you used the word authentic, but that was a word that I would certainly apply to our conversation and to you. So thank you so much for being a part. I think it was just a pretty straightforward conversation about just the importance of content marketing, the importance of being comfortable with writing, and if that's something like Troy mentioned, that's something that doesn't necessarily come comforting to him, you know, a book like this is very, very helpful. And so I would encourage you to take a look at this book, um, maybe get it for your team. Uh, I can I can imagine a, an enrollment marketing team sitting around over lunch, kind of going through the book over a few weeks. I think that would be a great exercise for you as a team to do that would really encourage all of you. So again, Ann, thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We know many of you have been with us since the beginning and that some of you have just found us today. Regardless of your time spent with us, we are so thankful for your support as we look to elevate the higher ed marketing community. Here's to 100 more episodes with fresh ideas from the very best in our industry. And of course, a few familiar voices as well. On behalf of myself, Troy Singer, and my co-host, Bart Kaler, thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. The Higher Ed Marketer is a production of Kaler Solutions and Ring Digital in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by guests on The Higher Ed Marketer are their own and may not reflect the views and opinions of their organization. Know someone who's a mover and a shaker in higher ed marketing? Visit www.higheredmarketerpodcast.com and click on our Contact Us page. We'd love to have you tell us about them. Until next time.